Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, May 6th, 2019, and I'm Cara Santa Maria. This week, we're going to have a chat with Dr. Barry Sandrew. But before we do, I want to thank those of you who made Talk Nerdy possible. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And that's because I rely on support both from ad sales and from listeners just like yourself. So if you want to hear your name called out at the top of the show, just visit patreon.com slash talknerdy. And you will see how you can support the show. This week, I want to thank Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Phil T-Bear, The Zombie Drummer, David J.E. Smith, Jeffrey Perez, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. All right. So this week, I chat with a very interesting individual. His name's Dr. Barry Sandrew. He's actually... Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital neuroscientist turned entrepreneur, inventor, digital imaging expert, visual effects pioneer, and filmmaker. And we're going to talk all about the really cool work that he did um, inventing uh, film colorization technique and doing all sorts of really cool visual effects over the course of his career. Uh, super fascinating stuff. A little bit of science meets Hollywood in this episode. So without any further ado, here he is, Dr. Barry Sandrew. Well, Barry, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a great opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. I have to first and foremost, thank you for being so flexible. I have had a banana schedule recently between trying to work on my PhD, working on the um, the new TV show that I'm working on, which I can't even tell anybody about yet, and um, seeing clients and podcasting and Oh my goodness! It's been a ton of fun, but um, let me turn something around a little bit. You're, you're working on a PhD in what? Uh, clinical psychology. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the seeing patients comes in, um, and it's yeah, it's been a ton of fun, but it's also like there's just a lot right now. It's been pretty exhausting. But of course, you know um, about having kind of your your toe in a lot of different pools. So. From what I gather, and correct me as we go through, so you did your PhD from Harvard in neuroscience, right? No, I didn't do it at Harvard. I, I did it at State University of New York at Stony Brook. I got my doctorate there, and then I did an, a National Institute of Health postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and then I became staff neuroscientist at, um, at Harvard for uh, seven years. I see. Okay. Okay, cool. So you're a staff neuroscientist at Harvard. That's right. um, and okay. And you did this training before. And so what was your position when you're at Harvard? What, what does a staff neuroscientist do? I, I was involved with basic neuroscience research, studying the neurochemistry, neurophysiology um, of, of, uh, of the brain. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, in particular, I was studying uh, emotions, memory, and pain. So the interesting thing is that now you are working, I mean, you have a lot of things you're working on. Um, you're working on a couple of startups, one in sports betting, one in augmented reality. Um, mm -hmm. You're also doing, uh, you're, you're heavily involved in these really cool visual effects projects for Hollywood films. So I, I, before we even dive into all of those cool things, I have to know, how does one transition from neuroscience to visual effects? Well, when I was at Harvard, I was also in I, one of my labs, the laboratories that I, I opened up there or uh, founded rather was uh, one in uh, neuroradiology. Okay. And that was in, this was in the early days of neuroradiology in, in even at Harvard. And 
it, it hadn't really gone digital yet. I mean, it was still analog. People were still looking at x-rays and that sort of thing. It wasn't, there, were, there were no digital x-rays or anything. Uh, and when, at Harvard, we used to get all of the greatest toys from Siemens and from GE and all the rest. Uh, and, and they got, gave us PET scans and CTs and MRIs that today are commonplace. But back then, they were really leading edge and they were a, a lot of them were very experimental. So I got involved in all of that and I got uh, I got fixated on um, trying to improve the diagnostic uh, quality of those images using color, using 3D uh, uh, reconstruction, all of those things that today uh, are, are, again, are very common. But back then, um, nobody ever, ever were, even thought about it. So I was using color in particular to um, to improve the diagnostic value of those uh, those X-rays and, um, and and the the digital work, the PET scans and the CT and everything. Hmm. And out of the blue, um, some entrepreneurs from um, from the East Coast uh, approached me to to find out if there's a way to colorize black and white movies. Uh, they had three failed attempts to produce a graphic uh, engine to do that. And they finally got some um, some advisors from Stanford Research who said, you should look at medical imaging because that's where it's all happening. They had heard about some of the work that I had been doing that I was trying to create a uh, computer. I was trying to build a computer to do 3D reconstructions for neuro, for neurologists. And they asked me if I, if I, if I could figure out a way to do that because there was an analog version of colorization, uh, and everybody hated it because it was terrible. It was basically <laughs> a, a it was basically a, a, a filter over Shirley Temple's face, mm. and it all bled around her, and it, would, it looked hor- horrible. And that's really what what gave colorization a, a bad name. Even though Frank Capra actually hired them to do "It's a Wonderful Life," and people don't really realize that they think that Frank Capra was against colorization, but no, he actually wanted it to be done. Uh, James Garner showed him uh, the, the version of the, the, their analog version. Said, "Hey, you got to do this with, with "It's a Wonderful Life," and uh, he was going to do it. So, was that what we think of when we think of um, Technicolor? No, okay. no, no, no. So that's totally not like different. the green teeth. Oh th- no, that's the green. That yeah, it's the green teeth. Yeah, it's the okay. yellow teeth. All of that. Okay. That's what that, that's what the analog stuff looked gotcha. like. Okay, exactly. yeah, I remember that and, for and, sure. And, and what these guys wanted to do is create a digital version that would be tight, that would be actually a visual effect that would that would uh, look real. And uh, and doing that with X-rays, I had those tools to do it. And when they, when they asked me how I might do it, I, I I basically, you know, went back to my lab and I, I didn't know colorization was was being done. Um, you know, Topper and few other movies were being done in analog. Uh, and then I looked, in, looked into it and I realized that it was very controversial, but I had a way to do it. And it was an intellectual problem for me. So I, I, I gave them a white paper, how I would do it. And then I, I went on my merry way. I said, you know, good luck. And I went on my merry way and didn't, didn't uh, hear from them until I went to the uh, Radio, Radiological Society of North America conference in Chicago. And they said, you know, your white paper is amazing. We think it would work. And we'd like you to check on uh, our latest graphic version of, of, of how to colorize, you know, digitally colorize movies. And they made me go from Chicago down to Austin to take a look at what they were doing. And I walked into this studio with these very high-powered graphic computers, and I saw a huge, fr- a huge uh, screen and on it was one image of the day the Earth stood still, when the when the, the silver robot or alien was coming out of this flying saucer. It's mm-hmm. pretty iconic. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so I, I said, okay, let me see what, how how your 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 uh, process works. And they said, well, it's working. And I it was like watching paint dry. <laughs> it, it, and and yeah, I said, you know, this is not going to work. You know, in a movie, you got 180,000 80, frames, black and white frames, and they all have to be in color. If it's going to be this slow, you're never going to be able to do it. I told them to just, you know, uh, close up that shop and, and, and forget about it because they're not going to be able to succeed. Then they, they, they finally asked me if I could invent it myself using the, the white paper, basically the, the uh, process that I gave them. 
And I, I said, well, you know, I've got a I've got a career in neuroscience at Harvard, and they made me an offer, frankly, that I couldn't refuse. <laughs> and I, left, I left my I left my family back in Boston, took a leave of absence from Harvard, and and went to San Diego mm-hmm. to basically build this process all by myself, one me and one computer. Wow! So I developed the process, and and oh, by the way, I should tell you that that this group of people, um, we're not just you know just anybody. Uh, coming out of the East Coast, the the board of directors included Al, Al Kasha, who, who won two two Oscars for for best music. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, and uh, Peter Engel, who's one of the most prolific NBC uh, producers ever. Um, at the time, he was doing um, Saved by the Bell, mm-hmm. uh, which nobody had heard of before, and he asked this company that I was joining to actually fund his uh, pilot, which we did. So, so, and, and the president was, uh, Bernie Weitzman, who became a very dear friend, uh, who was, uh, he- who headed up Desilu Studios. So these weren't people, you know, just anybody. They, they were substantial people in the industry. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone, I wouldn't have left my career to go to San Diego to try to do this thing. But what happened was, um, uh, we, we ended up, I ended up getting a, a, uh, a prototype that was good enough for a, a uh, uh, a press conference, and we did it across from uh, Universal in the Milk Building, which isn't there any longer. Murray Weitzman, who was uh, the uh, publicist for Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, all of these people, he just loved what I was doing, and he got and he introduced me to Sid Luft, who was Judy's husband uh, and, and and manager, and, and Sid had a whole bunch of Judy's. Uh, old films, old, old concerts, and everything gave me a lot of his, his, con- his that material to colorize, and that's what we showed at this press this press conference. I showed, you know, uh, uh, Frank Sinatra with his blue eyes coming out and singing a duet mm-hmm. with Judy Garland, Smart. and it looked beautiful. Yeah. And, and the press basically looked at it and said, "Hey, you know, this could work." Yeah, and that's how it happened. Oh, that's so cool! And so, what year was that when you uh, kind of? finished putting in all of that effort and got it where it needed to be that company i i, I left harvard uh in december 86 mm-hmm. i had the uh uh the press conference in um uh may of 87 and then uh june of 87 uh republic pictures gave me bells of saint mary's to do very first mm-hmm. movie with Bing Crosby, and uh, and that's that's what that's when it all started, and then uh, we went public the next year. Very cool. And so at that point, it sounds to me like you made the decision. You were like, "This is where it's at. This is really interesting. I love doing this. Um, this is my new career." Well, the money was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and it's an, I, I think it's a really interesting story because a lot of people listen to the show. And a lot of times when I am um, asked to go and give talks at um, sometimes at universities, but sometimes at just academic conferences, we talk a lot about academic careers. And we talk a lot about what is still to this day called a quote unquote alternative career, which is getting mm-hmm you know, you're training in academia and then working in some sort of industry. And more and more, exactly. I'm really pushing for this conversation about the fact that that is not an alternative career. It's a career. Like you can, you can get a really incredible academic training and not stay in academia if that's what you want. Exactly. I mean, I, so, and you hear a lot, a lot about neuroscientists in particular, for some reason, going, becoming uh, entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. there's so many of them. It's amazing. You know, once you've got that, that doctorate, you know, everybody knows. Yeah. You don't know everything, but a lot of people think you know everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's, sort of, it's sort of a ticket. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you really have, you really know what you're doing and you can, and and you can use your your training in in a diverse in diverse areas where they can actually monetize. That's gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened? Yeah, I mean, you think about it, and that's really what college education is. You know, um, 
the bachelor's degree now, I think in many ways, is kind of a new high school diploma. It's a ticket. It doesn't mean you have to do the job that you, you know, studied for your major in school. It just means that you've passed this certain level of competency to prove to your employer that, okay, I'm qualified to be able to do this job because I have the bachelor's. And then, you know, the master's is a, a different level of that same conversation. And in many ways, that's what the PhD is as well. It doesn't mean that you don't yeah. have a lot of expertise. No. Obviously, you do. Um, that's the whole yeah. point. There's a lot of depth and maybe sometimes a little less breadth when you get to that um, level. But it really is. I love that you called it a ticket because I think that's a good way to visualize it for people who are slogging through and suffering through their PhDs right now. And maybe sometimes this happens where they have this eureka moment where they're like, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my exactly. life. Or, well, the, th the, the one thread that has gone through virtually everything I've done mm -hmm. from from uh, from uh, medical imaging as a neuroscientist uh, through uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, two D to three D conversion, colorization, and and augmented reality, the one thread is digital imaging. Yeah, and the whole thing has to do with visual imaging, and 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 that's I I, I was at the right place at the right time. Um, both at uh, in medicine because that was the pioneering days of digital 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 medical imaging, mm -hmm. and in Hollywood because I was there actually before Hollywood went digital, yeah. just before Hollywood went digital. In fact, I created the first DI digital intermediary, which is the basics behind doing visual effects today. You can't do a visual effect without creating a digital inter intermediary or a digital copy of an entire feature film. Mm. And Elves of St. Mary's, that very first digital movie, I mean, I didn't know you couldn't do it. And that's what <laughs> I, everybody told me it was impossible after I did well, it. Well, good. I'm but glad I, I'm glad they waited <laughs> until then. <laughs> but, so that, that was the very first movie was that was ever completely 100% digitized as a DI. And I beat Technicolor by three years. Wow. Okay, so I would love to take a second to talk about, you know, maybe the difference between like, what is digitization? Um, you know, what was really technically the difference between what you did, and then ultimately what Technicolor did, and I think what everybody ended up doing, and what was being done prior to that? That's another couple hours. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> is there a top line that maybe you could share? Well, I know, I mean, when, when I was at uh, I mean, typically everything was film back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and w when you wanted to do a, an edit, I mean, not a, a cross dissolve, you had to do it optically mm. with, uh, you know, the, he, this huge piece of, of equipment with two projectors. And, and basically you're shooting a third projector, you know, creating this kind of cross dissolve. It was very, very complex. Wow. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I got involved in it a little bit, um, trying to use some of that analog stuff to create digital, but, but for the most part, uh, it was very crude. Nevertheless, there was, uh, there were a lot of holdouts. In other words, there were a lot of, uh, what I call legacy engineers mm -hmm. who, within Hollywood who would not give up film. They wanted, they said, you know, uh, you have to have film grain in the movie mm -hmm. um, because it, it it's more organic. You have to have you know, and, and when the film goes through the um, through the through projector in the sprockets, it weaves a little bit. I mean, it's called film weave, and they said it's you have to have film weave in there because the film has to, the story has to breathe. So they really honestly believed this kind of stuff, yeah. and they said it'll never ever go digital. Because they felt digital was limiting. Mm -hmm. Analog means if you have an if you have an X ray, you have an infinite amount of information in it. But once you've digitized it, well, now you've got pixels, so you've actually eliminated a certain amount of information. It's easier mm -hmm. to read, it's easier to use, and everything like that. But you have, in fact, uh, sampled the information, mm -hmm. and they they felt that that would never happen in movies. Well, it did. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it did. did. <laughs> Across the board, it did. And so, yeah. and so, okay, what about when we talk about specifically about colorization? 
um, because that process, we were talking a little bit offline um, before we started recording, and I mentioned uh, Peter Jackson's relatively new movie, They Shall Not Grow Old, um, where I thought this was a colorization process of World War I footage. Um, but this this is something that's maybe a little bit different from colorization. So I, maybe I got my technical terms mixed up there. Well, it it is colorization in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not colorization as I define it. Okay. Um, colorization as I define it. I, I, if I take a movie like It's a Wonderful Life and uh, a Holiday Inn, which I did in 87, 88, mm-hmm. and I, I did Miracle on 34, 3 in 86, and in zero, no, in 26, 27, 28, I did those three movies. And th- those are probably the best example of colorization ever. I mean, they, they really hit the high mark. Mm hmm. Um, and really, when I take a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, uh, it's already restored. It's already stabilized. The film looks pristine. It's beautiful. And it has a certain depth of luminance, a certain depth of gray that, re- that represents the image. And when I put in color into that image, it fills that gray scale. Okay. In other words, it, it, it doesn't go beyond it. Mm-hmm. Because if you go, if once you, so if you've got eight bits of gray, you've got 256 levels of gray, we'll say, this is very simple. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, I put in some extra levels of color mm-hmm. beyond the 256 in terms of, uh, of, of, of saturation. Uh, it'll look artificial. Okay. So you, you can't go beyond what the, what the frame tells you it can hold. Gotcha. Because then it's like you're painting and, on top of it. Exactly, you're exactly okay. right. So, so the end result is that the movie looks as if it were actually filmed in color back mm-hmm. then, with with effects. I mean, like uh, you know, in, in like it's a wonderful life when um, uh, when they were walking uh, in the in the garden in the moonlight. Well, we we sh- we cast blue shadows on on things. Uh, even on the flowers that were that were there, so we gave it a they gave it a blue tinge from the moonlight and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it just as if you would do it with a gel in in a, in, a, in actually shooting a movie. Sure. So we're able to do all of that creative stuff. So that's the way uh, that's the invention that 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 I I brought in mm-hmm. and 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 uh, but what what uh, Stereo D uh, did at Deluxe. And they're, they, they're, these guys are really great. They're my, they've been my competitors uh, in 2D to 3D conversion, but we're friendly competitors, and I think they're wonderful oh, that's people. Nice. And, yeah. and 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 uh, uh, Aaron Perry, I talked to him about uh, doing Peter Jackson, and I said, I said, damn, Aaron, you know, you should have come to me. <laughs> and he says, no. He said, Barry, hold judgment, hold back judgment till you actually see it. Yeah. And, and and I saw and so I, I I saw it, and what I realized was it really wasn't colorization because remember I don't add any luminance mm-hmm. I don't add any grayscale I don't add anything to the actual image other than color they added a lot to that image besides just color contouring uh, texture oh, yeah. all of these other things so and and in, in addition to color. Plus, then they then they slowed it down. Yeah, they changed they were, the know, frame rate that. for a lot of them. The yeah, yeah. so it, it would look current, mm-hmm. and then they they dubbed over it. Mm-hmm. With, yeah, they with, did a lot of work to manipulate that so, footage. So, right, so it was really a visual effect for it, sure. I mean, colorization is a visual effect, but this was this was high end visual effect. And here's the difference: the difference is that uh, they could never do that for "It's a Wonderful mm-hmm. Life." The reason they couldn't do it for It's a Wonderful Life is because, first of all, it would change the movie considerably. But number two, it would be uh, uh, prohibitively expensive. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, They Shall Not Grow Old, I guess that's the fundamental difference. They were tasked with taking archival war footage and making something um, that brought it into a current relevance. Look like it was shot today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so that as we watch it, we we connect with these soldiers and we feel like they're people instead of like reel-to-reel um, newspaper images yeah. of people, which makes them feel very right. distant from us. 
You're right. And, yeah. and, and, and it was beautiful and it was great. It was groundbreaking what they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did, he made it very difficult from what I understand. <laughs> uh, he, you know, because, because he, he, he cry- First of all, this stuff has no grayscale to begin with because it's so old. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, Sometimes they had to just figure out how to work the footage just to get it to be light enough to right. see it. Exactly. Yeah. And then they cropped in, which made it even less resolution. Mm-hmm. So so the resolution that you're seeing in this that's so good is all artificial. Yeah. And yeah, they did yeah, a be- they did a beautiful beautiful job of it. You'll never see I Love Lucy looking like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's cool to see that there are so many different um ways in and that the field in many ways, I mean, has exploded. Like, and we're not just talking colorization, we're talking, you know, visual effects in general. Visual effects are, I don't think that they're, unless a movie touts now, right, that this is like a classic film technique or that this is a um, traditionally shot film or that the most movies that we see, especially, let's be honest, like big budget movies or action movies are, I think it's getting to the point where it's more 3D um, or more visual effects than classic live action filming. Well, you take Life of Pi, and we, mm-hmm. I did a little work on it, but you take Life of Pi, and uh, it, 95% of it was animated. It's an animated movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the boat was real, the kid was real, everything else was yeah. pretty much not real. It was all shot in a, in a, in a big pool. Yeah. And, and, and but one of the problems with that is that, you know, visual effects is so important in, in the industry and vital in the industry because... You know, none of the superhero movies could ever be made without no. any, without all the visual effects and everything like that. Uh, but, you know, you take uh, Rhythm and Hughes that did uh, uh, Life of Pi. Mm-hmm. And Life of Pi was, was it, it was, it was wonderful. It was, it, it was, it was a major blockbuster, but they went bankrupt right afterwards. Oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. It is very expensive still, isn't it? It's very expensive to do it. And, but there's so much competition. Yeah. Really, everybody's, you know, you know. Uh, working against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to try and make the most maybe fantastic, but also at the same time realistic um, story that really does take you. I mean, it really does speak to, I think, a different type of filmmaking. And maybe I'm wrong here, but um, when I watch movies, there are two different ways that I personally watch movies. One of them is to dig deeper into reality, and the other is to have like full escapism. And mm-hmm. I think that these fan- like fantastic visual effects can really help you escape. And what's interesting is when I think there's been a new shift recently with visual effects to try and take you deeper into reality, which is maybe aging somebody down so that they can play young in the same film. Um, mm-hmm. Or or, you know, capturing um, somebody after they've passed away to be able or taking the captures that they took before they died and then manipulating them in such a way that even after they've passed away, they can maybe complete the film. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see what kinds of problems digital effects have been able to work on solving. Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Today, it's, they're almost to the point where where. Uh, Digital humans are convincing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost. Almost. No, they're not there yet. Yeah, but there yeah. are certain smart ways that I think the the really brilliant directors are using digital humans so that they don't have to be lead characters, so that you're kind of seeing them walk down a hallway or maybe the face is never 100% in view. And, and they, they really are convincing, you know. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's getting so close and it's just, it, we're not stuck in um, full uncanny valley anymore which is really neat yeah exactly and and it's getting it it's not only going into uh uh film but it's also going into stage work uh now with uh stage holograms okay so like with michael jackson and like uh tupac yeah yeah so obviously like uh we've kind of seen some examples like at Coachella and things like this, where we're seeing more like Pepper's ghost phenomena, but um, you had mentioned uh, holography previously, and I was really interested in maybe some of your insights about utilizing holography um, like in a modern way. Well, I I think first we have to, we have to set the stage by saying that, None of this is holography. Mm. It, in, in reality, it's not. In the scientific these are sense. Not, 
the yeah. art. These are not holograms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the, but they have they're very good effects, and they're what I would place them more in in the realm of augmented reality. Okay. Um, because uh, you know, Pepper's Ghost is an augmented reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's three hundred and sixty or or greater years old. And they used to use it as a parlor trick to to uh, for seances and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, and it's just a reflection of from, from it's a reflection off a mirror. But uh, you know, Disney used it in, uh, in their theme in their parks, the theme parks, and and uh, it was used for Michael Jackson at, at the Golden Globes, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people are doing it. Uh, Frank uh, uh, Ahmed Zappa um, is doing a tour um, using the technology. Uh, to present his father, uh, Frank Zappa, uh, it, it's it's a fantastic tour. It's a lot of fun. It's really cool. Um, so but it really worked, but it's very it's ancient technology. Um, but you know, there's other technology that can that is advances that same um, venue mm-hmm. uh, in a bit a better way. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the uh, uh, Pepsi Max bus bus stop commercial uh commercial on youtube Hmm, i don't think so well people should look at it because it's very cool what they did was they took a bus stop uh in in uh the uk and it has a a a window on either side so you can see the street on either side but it keeps you out of the weather Mm -hmm. and it's and and they what these people did was they took one of those windows out and they put an led screen there and then they put cameras uh on on the street facing side so that 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 window actually turned into once it was tur- that the LED screen actually turned into a window into the other side. Oh. It looked like a it was an iPad basically with with cameras, uh, back facing cameras. And then what they did was they overlaid uh, augmented reality. Uh, uh, they they had a tentacle coming out of uh, uh, a uh, a manhole and grabbing a guy and and bringing him into the manhole. And people are looking at this like it's real because it looks no different than the window on the other side because it's all facing the street and the street's all lined up. So if you take something like that and you create a 40-foot screen, say using uh, Sony's uh, micro LEDs that you can actually tile. So you just picture a a 40-foot LED screen. Mm -hmm. Well, with cameras facing towards the stage, you could have an empty stage, but you could have now you could overlay Elvis or anybody else walking around throughout that stage and and with 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 choreographed color uh, of lighting and everything. And he could be interacting with live humans in the back. So so this is an advance, a a huge advance from where we are today with Pepper's Ghost. Yeah, that's really brilliant. I mean, and think about it. It doesn't take much, right? I mean, this is kind of going back to your your neuroscience training. It doesn't it doesn't have to be perfect in order to trick the mind into thinking it's real so long as it fits in kind of these these traditional schemas. Like it's like optical illusions. Like your brain will fill in gaps. So so long as it doesn't take you to a place that's out of comfort. So long mm-hmm. as it, it it feels close enough and approximates in a close enough way, your brain will start to perceive it as if like you're literally watching a dead person risen. Well, you, you definitely you just hit on on my latest uh, uh, interest, and 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 that is to make augmented reality into an entertainment medium, and I'm doing it in a way, and I can, it's in it's in stealth mode right now, but it, but it, it'll be out within the next six months. Mm-hmm. But it's basically what you're saying right there. It it it's 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 allowing people to become voyeurs in in an entertainment venue, mm-hmm. uh, but it but an entertainment venue that's not supposed to be an entertainment venue, if you know what I mean. Interesting. So yeah, so that that's gonna. We're working on it now. We're doing our proof of concept, um, and uh, we should have this done uh, within the next six months. Involving um, uh, point some some very very sophisticated point cloud technology. So um, I know that it's not out yet, right? So you probably have to be careful about how you talk about it. But can you tell us any more about kind of the technology or like um, what the goals are? No, but we could follow up on it. <laughs> okay, we, we could follow up on it in six months. <laughs> 
All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode. It's EveryKey, and EveryKey is going to help you with so many problems, whether it's forgetting your passwords and logins all the time on your machine, whether it's a fear of being hacked, which is a legitimate concern nowadays, whether you're really stressed about time, or maybe you're just feeling a bit frustrated in life. The great thing about EveryKey is going to is it's going to help you take back your time and your life. Let me tell you how it works. So every key is this really cool little device that you plug into your computer and it remembers the passwords to your website accounts or it automatically generates super secure passwords for you. It can also unlock your devices like your laptops, your tablets, and your phones when you're nearby and lock them down again when you walk away. And soon, get this, it's going to help you unlock your car and your house as well. But here's the great part in case you're concerned. If you lose your every key, you can freeze it to make sure that no one else can use it. No more trying to remember passwords. No more worrying about getting hacked. It's a Bluetooth key. It, it It's like really, really smart and it makes life so much more convenient. So guys, I don't know what you're waiting for. I think it's time to try every key. All you got to do is go to everykey.com and use the promo code nerdy20 and you will get 20% off of your entire purchase. Again, that's E-V-E-R-Y-K-E-Y.com and use the promo code nerdy20 to purchase your new every key and get 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Then maybe we can take a moment to talk about augmented reality, because I think that, um, you know, there's some people listening who are like, yeah, yeah, AR, sure. And there are other people who are like, I've heard that word before, but I feel like I don't quite know what it is. Well, there's virtual reality, there's augmented reality, and there's uh, mixed reality. Okay. The, and, and virtual reality is 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 pretty much computer generated. Uh, oh, you can have you can have uh, video in it too, three hundred and sixty degree video this is where you you actually wear a uh, uh, an apparatus over your your eyes, mm -hmm. and you have headphones. And you're taken totally outside of your your own reality, mm -hmm. and you're you're presented with uh, visuals and 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 sounds and everything that uh, make you feel like you're in another place. Um, this has been around for decades, and it's it's gotten to the point where it's really improved tremendously. But it's a a very unique form of it's a it's a unique media. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great for games. It's great for for uh, uh, documentaries, perhaps for for uh, uh, tourism things, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. But uh, for storytelling, it's very very difficult. Right, because you have to you can't follow the plot unless you focus on it. Like because it's up to you where you're looking when you're doing VR. That's yeah. right. So you know, I mean, Ang Lee once said, um, you know. When he was at, he was asked, you know, what do you think of VR? He said, uh, "My VR is better than your VR. Let me move the camera." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But and, and that's what that's why I feel about it. But but augmented reality actually overlays within your own reality. Mm -hmm. So it overlays images that that can be um, can fit. They can appear to, to actually really be there within your own reality. And that opens up a whole new realm of, uh, of possibilities in terms of storytelling. And that's where I can't get into it too deeply. But it's interesting because um, obviously you are really uh, involved in and enamored with uh, Hollywood films. And so the angle that your work is taking, and I think that a lot of people who are interested in AR is taking is in, in storytelling. But when I think of AR, right. I almost always think of marketing, which makes me so sad because I just, it's such an <laughs> obvious low hanging fruit that once AR or as AR is getting to be more and more realistic and maybe a good example that we can say of, of uh, augmented reality that we've seen uh, maybe a, a more simplistic example is like that Pokemon game that people were playing oh, sure. or mm -hmm. even sometimes you'll see, um, 
companies that are selling, like, let's say a pair of glasses, and then you can like virtually try them on something like that, where it's overlaying it over your face. And I'm always going to this place where I'm like seeing the future 20, 30 years from now, where everything is AR and you're walking down the street and there are these fake billboards and you're trying on clothes digitally and it like freaks me out to no end. Oh, it's going, it's going to become ubiquitous. There's no doubt about it. And, and, you know, and, 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 the beauty of it is that there's no barrier to entry because 95% of us have smartphones that can see, yeah. uh, that, can, that can display augmented reality. But, you know, in, in, in retail, yeah, it's going to be huge. But there are some other really cool things that are being done. Jackson Pollock has a, uh, uh, a, a wing at the New York uh, Museum of, of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. And one very, very uh, innovative uh, artist uh, actually had an, a, an app made and he, um, he actually had a, a, a private, uh, uh, art exhibit at the Jackson music at Jackson, uh, uh, uh wing mm-hmm. using his own material mm-hmm. because what he did was he actually in this, uh, in this app that he downloaded to his friends and who he invited it to the, to the, uh, the art exhibit, um, you look at you. You pointed at any one of uh, Jackson's uh, paintings, and that is a target for the other person's painting. Oh, wow! So it just completely it's perfectly a- overlaid them. <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. So yeah. So this amateur painter uh, actually had had his own uh, uh, art exhibit at the uh, Jackson Pollock exhibit. <laughs> I love that. And you even see sometimes with like educational um, uh, toys and things like that. These. Um, V, or, I'm sorry, these AR cards that are so genius. They have some sort of marker oh, yeah. on them. And when you use the the right app and your phone targets on this little, you know, paper card, all of a sudden what was 2D pops up as a gorgeous 3D image of yeah. a dinosaur or the space station or whatever it is you're learning about. I mean, I could definitely see museums becoming fully AR immersive within the next oh, year. Are. Oh, they're already doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 you know, there's a company called uh, Octagon Studios, and they've got these uh, alphabet cards, and they're very simple alphabet cards. Mm-hmm. But each one of them has a, has a uh, an animal on mm-hmm. it, and you take your mo- mobile phone and you you look at that animal, and the animal comes to life, yeah. and you you you've got a monkey, and it and it's animated, and it looks beautiful, it looks photo real. And you put a banana card right next to it, and he goes over and eats the oh, banana. Cute. My, my well, my daughter is, uh, you know, she she's a licensed uh, um, uh, therapist. She deals with uh, autistic kids, mm-hmm. and she uses these all the time. It really, really helps with with them and getting their attention and everything because it, you know it's it it appears to be magic mm-hmm. and vir- virtual reality. You know, when you put that got those goggles on, you expect to be you know wowed. Yeah. But when you actually see something in your own reality um, that shouldn't be there, that's magic. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And you're right. And it really does. Not just kids, right? It kind of turns adults into kids because we're like, wow, no way. How did they do that? Mm-hmm. That's so fun. So, I mean, it's such an interesting path and an interesting journey. And of course, it does speak to your classic kind of academic training in neuroscience. Um that, you know, you understand sort of perception and cognition and how these visual effects really do, um, really do come into play when we start to try and understand the psychology or the behavioral um, basis of how our brains work. And of course, you also gave us some background about the colorization work that you were doing with um, medical imaging and and how that's such a perfect crossover. But I'd love to know from you, because I'm always so interested in everybody's journey, um, going into, you know, first these movie studios and or production companies and then movie or visual effects houses, and then moving now into the startup world. How prepared do you feel like you were with your academic training and how much do you think that you had to kind of self-educate you know did you know anything about business when you first started to make this transition was there a big learning curve for you well first of all they've all been startups uh, oh really when I left, okay when I, yeah when I, when I left harvard it was just me and a machine yeah. and, and i built that into a company with the maquilador uh, uh which is a Mexican production company. I had about 1,100 
employees uh, at the end of, of that company. Um, then I, I found I co-founded another company called uh, Lightspan, which was info uh, infotainment. Um, and we were trying to uh, basically win the uh, cable telco um, competition for the home and and provide, um, you know, K-6 uh, education mm-hmm. that was entertaining. And we, we, we did that using the Sony PlayStation and about 150 uh, CDs that were that met all state requirements for kids. Mm-hmm. So that was that was another another startup. And then the third one was uh, 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 Legend Films. Where I reinvented colorization and also invented some um, um, some uh, visual effects technology. I did uh, Scorsese's The Aviator worked on that and did, did a lot of work for for HBO and Entourage. Um, and then uh, then I in 2007 um, I uh, invent and by that by that reinventing the colorization again that was just me and one computer and that that turned into. Uh, I had a studio then in India with about 750 people. Then uh, in 2007, I, I saw my first uh, 3D-ready television, a Mitsubishi uh, DLP television, mm-hmm. um, and it just blew me away. And I said, this is going to be the future of, of entertainment, at least I thought so back then. And I knew what was uh, what, what, what uh, um, Cameron was doing with Avatar. I mean, yeah. the, the word got out. I, nobody had seen it yet, but... It was going to be groundbreaking. It was going to be a game changer. And when I saw uh, 3D, I immediately thought about the conversion process. I mean, being able to convert movies from 2D to 3D. Um, and and it turned out that my colorization pipeline was about 65% of the process for for converting movies from 2D to 3D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to, I just had to invent the end the end. Uh, uh, basically the back end. Wow. So I, I did that. And, uh, um, right after it, and it's interesting because we were, we were showing it to all the studios around 2008. Um, and then, uh, uh, I, I, I got my first contract to do a conversion with, uh, Michael Jackson's, this is it tour. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we delivered it. It was, he, he it was going to be ecologically based. He was going to have a 90 foot screen. that was all 3d behind him as he was performing. And uh, we we uh, we turned it in. Unfortunately, the, the day he died, but we we got paid for it. But it, and it taught me a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the next month, uh, Avatar came out, and then um, the next month, I got Alice in Wonderland. Oh, very cool! And uh, from from Disney, and and it just kept on going from there. Um, so you know the the uh, the technology. Um, and I, I, I kind of uh, lost where I was going with that. Oh, I know where it was. These were all startups, one hundred percent startups from the beginning. And and uh, and and so these new ones that I'm doing are are uh, really no different. They're they're in different areas, except for AR. AR is an extension of what I've been doing. Do you feel like that is a function of the time, just that you're really interested in these things, kind of as they were at the bleeding edge, or do you think that there's also some um, kind of personality factors that come into play that you like to be sort of self-directive and that you don't want to come into an established team, but you want to like you know kind of start this thing. I don't think I could, I could work for a big company that's already established. I think I'd have to build it myself. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never I've never uh, applied for a job. I've always made my own mm-hmm. jobs, and and uh, um, I, I I think I was lucky in that I was the right person at the right time when all of this digital imaging was just starting, and I just it, I had a knack for it, and I had a I I, I could instantly see the application and how it would work. Mm-hmm. It, it, it to me it would seem it seemed second nature almost uh, you know when you go back to those guys that wanted me to invent colorization uh, i mean within 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 an hour i had this whole solution because it was so simple to me and that's only because i think my uh, my orientation was not a traditional in other words if you took a graphic artist or you took somebody who was in that field they would have had a traditional approach towards that problem. But here you take a neuroscientist mm. who's working on medical images. I'm, I'm looking at it from an oblique angle. And to me, it would seem relatively simple. 
But if I were in the industry, I probably would have uh, not been able to figure it yeah, out. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really is that kind of cognitive flexibility that comes in sometimes. You're right. When you enter a problem-solving environment from a completely different background. And I think that speaks to something that um, that I often reiterate when I'm giving talks to uh, students is that don't be afraid of doors when they open, especially or... Um, uh, yeah, especially if they don't feel like 100% like they were on your kind of straight and narrow path, because sometimes you're the best person for that job, you know, kind of taking mm-hmm. a left turn or a right turn means that you can offer something that the other people in the room maybe can't. And so just because you've always been training one way and you've always had this idea of what exactly where that training is going to lead you Try not to be too locked into that, because I think that sometimes the best um, revolutionary problem solving approaches come from people who weren't so entrenched. Yeah. You know, one thing I tell people, um, you know, I do I do a lot of uh, advise a lot of PhD um, um, candidates mm-hmm. and the like, and, and I always tell them, you know, be very, very aware of whether you are in an echo chamber, mm-hmm. because echo chambers are very, very easy to fall into. And what I mean by an echo chamber is if you, if you have, if you, if you're in an environment where all the people think the same way mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and really, um, in, are, are indoctrinated in one direction, um, you got to move out of that. Because you're never going to grow. Yeah. You're just going to end up uh, being just like them. And, and that's really what happened, for instance, in, um, with, with, uh, med- with not medical imaging, but with uh, digital Hollywood, for instance. Uh, and today, it, it, it's happening with virtual reality because there's still an echo chamber in the, in, in, uh, the, the entertainment industry. People are still talking about movie making using virtual reality. And, and uh, you know, I keep asking them, well, show me one title one product uh, in real storytelling that's not game gaming uh that's that's create that's produced a return on the investment they can't yeah. and they won't there won't be any because there's not enough of an installed base of of people who actually want to put these things on and spend an hour watching something yeah. uh, outside of their reality it's not going to happen yeah, it's definitely limiting because of the hardware. But in you, you're right, like, in terms of the applications that make perfect sense, like, um, what's it called surgical theater, like training for um, surgery for doing gaming, um, yeah. uh, even like military applications and things like that. It's amazing. But you're right, like, I don't want to wear a headset when I go to the movies. Also, uh, it's getting so much better. It's getting to the point where I actually don't get sick um, much anymore in headsets. But I used to get so barfy when I wore those things. Yeah, yeah I don't. They're not my. They're, they're not my thing at all. And and you know, I mean, augmented reality. I think uh, augmented reality or virtual reality. Have you seen any um, uh, AR um, or mixed reality portals? No, I haven't. Oh well, if you go into YouTube and just put in AR portals, mm-hmm. you're going to be amazed at what what, what you're going to see because basically they're with their actual doors, augmented reality doors that take you into an, in a, a totally different environment. It could be a real environment or it could be a, a, an imaginary environment. Mm-hmm. So, it, but, but again, it's within your, it's within your reality. So once you, you, you can look in this, in, in the, in the door uh, and you can, you can, you can to let go to left to the right and actually see more of the stuff. You can see parallax and, and you can actually then go into the door yeah and be encased in, in, in that environment. And if you look around, you can see where you came from. That's cool. Oh, that's cool. really cool. Yeah, you can look back and, and see your house yeah. back there. Through the, oh, that's really neat. That's I love great. that. Oh, man, I'm so going to do that. Like, as soon as we're finished with this um, recording. Gosh, um, so much good stuff here, Barry. I would love to know from you, like, you, you mentioned the um, the new startup that you're working on. Um, what else is, is going on in your world right now? Like, wh- where do you have your, your focus? Well, I'm, I, right now I'm running a, a studio called South Bay Visual Effects in Hollywood mm-hmm. and we're doing a 2d to 3d conversion as I, I did before with my, my other company legend 3d. Um, but we're also, uh, involved in visual effects for, you know, uh, major studios, Netflix and the like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. And then you've got this, um, this AR, um, startup that you're working on and, um, oh gosh, there was something that this is like, so 
I don't know, like oblique uh, as the, the term that you use to the conversation that we're having. But when originally we were scheduling this podcast, you were working on a different project that had some interesting like um, peaks to it. And um, one of the things that the publicist that reached out said was, oh, also, by the way, Barry has prosopagnosia. And I remember <laughs> that really piquing my interest at the time because I think it's fascinating. I just wrote a big paper about it for school. Um, and also for somebody who is so focused on visual effects and who's so focused on, um, on you know, the look of things, how fascinating that you have a hard time with faces. So I'd love to just take a second to chat about that. Oh, sure. I mean, that's something that's always fascinated me. And the beauty of it is that um, you know, being a neuroscientist, I can I can introspectively examine myself mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and understand it. Um prosopagnosia is um face blindness. Yeah. And it affects about two and a half percent of the population. Um and uh most people don't even know they have it. You know, most people you you'll talk to people and say, Well, I'm not good with faces, I'm yeah, not good with yeah. names. But but in reality, they may have prosopagnosia. I mean, I, there are people, uh, Oliver Sacks is a famous neurologist who had prosopagnosia so bad that he couldn't recognize himself in the mm -hmm. mirror. Um, I've got it uh, to the point where, you know, I, I, I would need my wife to come to a cocktail party with me and uh, I'd have a leash. Yeah. And, the, and basically she would tell me these are the people that we've known for 25 years. Oh my gosh. So it, 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 it's a, it's a major handicap. A lot of, and, and a lot of people have it in business, uh, you know, and they, they just don't remember people and that's the worst time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I've been, I've been looking to uh, create an app that would allow people to actually, um, uh, recognize faces and recognize. I mean, cause it's a medically, it's a medical condition. Yeah, and if you could like see the fa if if some sort of database or if there was a way for you to just get a little bit more information or you know like because people with prosopagnosia work around it by some people, people who don't have it as severely by, okay, maybe you'll recognize their voice or maybe they always wear the same pair of glasses or maybe they, but it's the synthesis of the yeah. face that you have a hard time with. People with prosopagnosia, I mean, if I saw you mm -hmm. and I could, and I was a, a really a great uh, uh, portrait artist, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm not, but I, but if I saw you, I could paint your, your face perfectly. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that you and everybody else would think it was photo real, mm. even though I have prosopagnosia. The problem is not not recognizing you. Mm. It, it's that I, I I look at faces and people with prosopagnosia look at faces as pieces, yeah. not as a gestalt. Mm. All right. So when I see if I if I if I painted you and then saw you in in a supermarket out of context, I would walk right by you would not recognize so you. Funny. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's really a handicap for a lot of people, and uh, and there's no cure for yeah. it, and nobody really cares about it. There's not a lot of research on it because you know you're not going to die from it. It's true. Most of the research on prosopagnosia, I mean, I like I just wrote a big review paper on it. So most of the research is on oh, yeah, yeah, is on um, acquired prosopagnosia. But more and more people are looking at what they call congenital prosopagnosia or developmental prosopagnosia, where basically it, it does seem to be that there's less activity in the same region of the brain that the fusiform gyrus as people who have acquired prosopagnosia, meaning that they bumped their head or they had a stroke and they actually damaged that region of the brain uh, that's uh, really yeah. good at recognizing faces. So architecturally, structurally, there doesn't seem to be a difference. There's only a functional difference in that area for people with um, acquired, or I'm sorry, with congenital prosopagnosia, which um, I, I, I take it is what you have because you've always had this problem. Yeah. 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 yeah I've, I've always had, I mean, I've always had this problem. Um, and, uh, you know, there, Jane Goodall has, has mm -hmm. it, uh, Wozniak, Steve Wozniak has it. There, there's so many, so many people, um, who, who actually suffer from it and uh, they have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's, it's really a problem. It, it, it would be wonderful if, uh, if there was an app that, that could actually help. And, and you know, that the two and a half percent is just the extreme. Oh, the, oh and on the other side, there are super recognizers, yeah, which yeah. is kind of cool. And those people never forget a face, no matter how uh, trivial the, the introduction, you can, a waiter, 
for lunch, you'll never forget that person's face. So, and, and here the, the the thing that fascinates me the most about it as a neuroscientist is that this is one function that's hardwired in the brain. You're not going if you don't have it, you're never going to get yeah. it. It's not going nothing you can improve. This is this is so important uh, in, in our evolution uh, that it's hardwired. It's probably because you know obviously. Uh, you don't want to be, uh, I mean, you want to be able to recognize everybody in your tribe or in yeah. your, 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 your group. Uh, and, and if you, uh, if you don't, then you're going to be, you're, you're going to be killed. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting that there's some argument now within the literature that, um, uh, congenital prosopagnosia or developmental prosopagnosia, it, is it a pathology or is it just literally the extreme and the low end of normal? Just like you mentioned mm-hmm. that there's the other extreme of the super recognizers. Um, cause I feel like I fall really somewhere in between. I can recognize the people that I'm working with on a regular basis. Um, I can recognize my my friends and family. So I know I don't have prospagnosia, but I still consider myself to be one of those people who's not great with faces. Like if I only meet somebody once or I can't really contextualize them heavily um, or, you know, they don't remind me of somebody else, like that's gone. Yeah. That's just gone. Like the next time I see yeah. them, you know, six months later out of context, I met them one time at a party or I'm, I took a class with them, uh, you know, a one, a one session class or something. Yeah. I'm not going to remember that person later. I know, and, and it, but to somebody with prosopagnosia, it's incredibly uh, socially damaging mm-hmm. because you you know you 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 see somebody that you know you know, yeah. but you can't place them, and you don't you can't go up and talk to them because you may have known them for twenty five years. Yeah, it's like at, at le- your kids may have grown up with your kids, oh, wow. and you can't and and to say you know just to, to say do I, I can't reckon I don't remember your name is a huge insult to them because their ego is hurt because I mean, I'm, I'm not important enough for you to recognize me. And like, you can't you know? walk around all day, every day. I have face blindness. I have face blindness. Whereas like with your friends, your family, the people who you know well, they, you know, you can talk to them about it. They know it about you. Don't take it personally. Sure. It's it's a, I have a very different brain than you do. And this is why I love you and I care about you deeply. I just sometimes don't recognize you. Um, yeah. But yeah, trying to disclaim that to everybody. And I think it's also important. Some of the stuff that I was reading, which was really interesting, was about children with uh, with congenital prosopagnosia and the idea that like parents need to be ready to recognize the fact that when their kids look confused when they go to pick them up from school or they sometimes follow strangers thinking that they're you like you you, to be aware of the fact that this can be really scary and overwhelming for children because they may not recognize their own parents sometimes exactly and you know i I mean there's no proof to this nobody's looked at it Mm -hmm. um but uh, you know, there, there's there's a possibility that that there's a certain number of uh, uh, aut- types of autism mm-hmm. may simply be, you know, children don't recognize who they're talking yeah, to. Yeah, that could give you all sorts of, and, that's true, kind of and downstream and they, effects. And, and, and they couldn't, they're not telling you that because they don't know any different. Mm-hmm. And it again, nobody's looking at this. I don't know if it's true, and no, I don't know if there's any research on it or anything. But to me, studying prosopagnosia, it seems like a natural thing for them, you know, not to be looking people in the eye, not to be engaged with them because they don't know. They are. Yeah, and this this does happen a lot in neuropsychology, where that's why differential diagnosis is so important, right? Is that there are some um, uh, whether you want to call them disorders or just things where like somebody's not as neurotypical. Um, that uh, that it's very different things in the brain and even very different behavioral outcomes. But this there's some crossover with this like one thing where you have to rule everything else out until you can really know what's going on. We see it a lot in, in psychology with like, let's say, trauma, um, trauma informed disorders and ADHD or anxiety, like anxiety, generalized anxiety and PTSD can look really similar or ADHD and PTSD can look really similar if you aren't like kind of going through and doing that differential. So that it is really interesting that, uh, yeah, there, I wouldn't be surprised if some people were completely misdiagnosed, um, because yeah. of that reason. Or, or it may, it, it may be one of the same. Yeah, that's what true. I'm and it may also just be um, uh, comorbid, like, you know, one of those things where mm-hmm. it's, you know, maybe one in the same or it may be that it's so commonly comes together because of the way that our brains develop. 
Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting. Hey, people who are listening who are trying to figure out what to do for your Ph.D. thesis. Um, you've got some ideas here yeah, just from this yeah, podcast. <laughs> well, gosh, Barry, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I always close every episode by asking my guests the same two questions. And um, they're kind of big picture questions. Um, you yeah. interested in, in giving them a, a crack? Well, let's try me. <laughs> All right. So I want you to think about the future. Um, something that I'm sure you do often in your in your work, thinking about the future um, in whatever context is honestly relevant to you. It could be your your work. It could be your personal um, a personal context. It could be global stuff, big picture stuff. Um, but the first thing that I want to know is, A, what is kind of the thing that really does keep you up the most at night? The thing that maybe you're the most um, concerned about, maybe... Um, maybe even a little bit pessimistic, dare I say cynical about, um, that you're worried about. And, and, and on the flip side of that, I would love to know, what is it that you're genuinely looking forward to? You know, what do you have true optimism for? Well, I, I think I can answer them both in the same, in the same way. Okay. And, and it all relates to what I'm doing. Going, having gone through, um, through colorization and 2D to 3D conversion, um, I got to learn pretty much what the consumer is looking for mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, and, and, and I, I, I hate to be this narrow, but I, but really the, the, I'm focused on, on, on imaging and, and, and on uh, monetizing uh, uh, various types of media. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 what I realize is that um, the reason that uh, virtual reality doesn't work is because it, 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 it it uh, creates too many um, demands on on the audience. Mm-hmm. The audience really wants to be told a story, and when we when we create when we created twenty four frames a second in, for film, it, it didn't create realism. It created something that was a little bit strange. Strange. It was just above the flicker fusion frequency, mm-hmm. where you can't see the frames, but you can see motion, and but that was enough to take you out of your everyday world and get you immersed into it it, take, it takes you somewhere else and i think that's what people are are, are, are working on right now or, i mean that, i think that's what that's where the audiences are today the majority of them and the thing that bothers me is when so much money is being spent on these alternative realities that nobody's going to actually ever be able to monetize mm-hmm. when there are some really fantastic, unbelievable things coming down the path in terms of mixed reality that uh, that's going to blow people away. And it's going to that will genuinely, genuinely be an extension of the storytelling medium. And I I think we're going to see that within again, uh, I I think I'm starting on it. And I think I I, I may have a, a glimpse of it within the next six months. But I think that's where it's all going. Uh, again, the thing that keeps me awake at night is the enormous amounts of money being wasted on technology in, in media that's not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And so is, is the flip side of it, what you just mentioned, um, <clears throat> kind of on the tail of that, that the thing that you're actually looking forward to is um, what you're really investing a lot of your time into right now? I can't wait to show it to yeah. everybody. <laughs> If once this comes together, it's going to people are just it's it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be Pokemon Go all over again, except significantly different. Very cool. Gosh, well, that's really exciting. So, Barry, I mean, I, I just have to thank you so much for taking the time for joining me for being so flexible and understanding with my um just like bananas schedule. Um, oh, no so be, before we go, um, let everybody know how can they follow kind of what you've been doing, what you're up to. Is there a website? Are you, are you active on social media? How can they learn more oh, about yeah, very you? Active. Very active on social media. Um, my Twitter uh, handle is uh, movie producer. Obviously I got that early on, <laughs> but uh, my LinkedIn uh, is probably my, I also have a, a, um, a blog, mm-hmm. but I generally spend most of my time on uh, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And if you look at LinkedIn, look me up. And I, what I do is I talk about the latest and greatest in terms of television, me, uh, movies, uh, imaging in general, that sort of technology. Very cool. Gosh, well, Barry, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really fascinating. Well, thank you. 
Of course, and everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter.